welcome to the Writer's Block, proudly presented by your local public radio station and listeners like you. I am Rylan Grant, screenwriter, Ringo award-winning creator of fine comics like Everett, Van Jackson, now Suicide Jockeys. The other voice in the dark, the man in the box to the left is... I'm David Avalone. I'm here to tell you some stories and maybe some cookie recipes later. <laughs> I'm a filmmaker and screenwriter. And also a comic book writer. <laughs> I don't know if I can continue to talk in this voice I, for too much longer. So I, I think your NBR voice is better than mine. <laughs> someone, someone once told me that my voice reminded them of uh, Ira Glass, and boy, did I not know how to take that. He was like, "No, no, it's a compliment. It's totally a compliment." I'm like, "Hmm." Mm. I think it's a compliment. Uh, people are used to me screaming, I'm sorry, if you missed any of our previous conversations, <laughs> episodes featuring comic luminaries like David F. Walker, Matt Fraction, Stan Sakai, Kevin Eastman, Rodney Barnes, and many more. Our entire catalog can be celebrated via YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and other purveyors of worthwhile ear crack. So double on back and check it out. This is already a train wreck. Uh, uh, great very, show for you today. It's a very quiet, slow-moving train wreck, and that's the best. That's really the best kind. <laughs> great show for you today. Odd show, uh, which we will explain in just a minute or two. But why don't we get uh, some plugs in, uh, Avalon? You want you go first? Plugs? This very day, friends and friends, Romans and countrymen. This very day, Elvira meets Vincent Price, number the third. Uh, should be dropping in your local comic book store and on various digital formats. And I say go get it. Uh, it's uh, This issue is titled Raiders of the Lost Schlock because there are various ancient Egyptian hijinks therein. Uh, ancient Egyptians actually show up. And, uh, and it's good, clean, wholesome horror movie fun. And uh, that's what I got going. I got other things we'll talk about, but we're going to talk about a lot of things today. A lot of other things that we got going on. And uh, Ryland, how about you? What you got next? A whole lot of business. So uh, one week from today, this day, uh, you will find issue four, uh, the final issue of the first story arc of my latest and greatest, uh, the Tokusatsu joint Suicide Jockeys. Um, Tokusatsu for the Uninitiated is the Japanese sci-fi action genre that includes things like Power Rangers and Voltron and uh, Kaiju Fair like Godzilla. Uh, in a nutshell, Suicide Jockeys is Fast and the Furious meets uh, Voltron with an extra dollop of heart and soul and a little Zen philosophy thrown in there. Um, it is good, bonkers fun. Uh, go out and get that. Um, you, can, uh, you can read the whole first story arc right now. So, nice. fun, fun, fun. So, so today's episode, we decided to do something a little different because we're both uh, tired and burnt out, <laughs> and we were both a little overworked lately, uh, and maybe even a little too overworked to book guests. Uh, so today's episode is going to mark the beginning of a little hiatus for us. We're going to come back early in 2002, probably 2022, just lost, just shaved 20 years off my life, yeah. early in 2022. Um, and today we're going to interview each other and, uh, go a little deeper on some of the stuff that we hit, uh, that we hit every week. We've told our origin stories a number of times, but you know, there's, uh, when we have guests on, I, we don't pry too deeply into ourselves, I think. And, uh, it seemed like a good, good way to wrap up our 54 episode run. That is wild when I think about it. Yeah. That's a uh, lot of. 
it's been like a year and a half and we've taken a little time off here and there, but, uh, this'll be, this'll be a long break for us. And, uh, 54 episodes is a lot of episodes of anything. <laughs> so, a lot of content. It's like yeah. 75 hours of, uh, of business. Yeah. That's the least. other thing is we, you know, the intention was always that these would be an hour and, uh, <laughs> we have good guests and they're chatty and they want to keep talking and no one, uh, I think Phil Lamar is the only one who did the 1970s talk show. I got a plane to catch thing in the middle of an episode, <laughs> but he really did. I, I, I trust Phil that he did in fact have a train to catch a uh, plane to catch, but, um, but yeah, people have wanted to stay on and wanted to continue talking. And I've always taken that as the highest possible compliment instead of how quickly can I get out of here and stop talking to these two photos. <laughs> Which certainly I could have been anyone's, uh, you know, anyone's reaction. And we've had, I mean, I think it's worth saying we've had amazing guests. We've had legendary people like Eastman, as we talked about earlier. We've like Rodney Barnes, the hardest working man in show business. You know, Joe Duffy, whose comics I was reading when I was twelve or thirteen. You know, yeah. really, really great influential people, and they've all been so gracious and so giving of their time. You know. And they uh, and they seem to want to come back. Many mm -hmm. have come back uh, uh, repeatedly, or or you know, or let us know that you know their their game uh, uh, for the next go round. And I get help via Twitter, like you know, hey, uh, you know, you got a you got another opening. Let oh, me absolutely. Know, let me know. No, so, we yeah, have that, that, that's the biggest compliment, you know, when it's like people that are running TV shows and they uh, yeah. they're kind of begging to give you an hour and a half of their time. So yeah, cool. no, it's it's really nice, and we have. You know, there are, there are unplumbed depths as far as where we're going to go next and who else we have on the, you know, on the, uh, on the horizon for the show. Uh, I'm not going to name any names because I, I always, always under promise and over deliver, as I say. So, you know, uh, we'll keep that, we'll keep that close to the vest for now. But, uh, but yeah, no, I think there'll, there'll be some, there'll be some fun stuff early in the new year. And again, with the same thing with that. We could be back January 5th, but I ain't saying. Because <laughs> I don't want to commit to, I don't want to wake up the day after Christmas and go, oh, right, now I got to book a show. Right, 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 right. So, <laughs> I don't want to, uh, yeah, I, I don't want to rattle everybody. I don't want to get people too worked up or excited. But chances are David Pepos is going to be back at some point. So. <laughs> the odds are good that Charlie Stickney. <laughs> will reappear at some point. I feel I feel pretty solid about that. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's a funny joke, but I but but like you said, I mean, we have had a um, kind of a murderer's row of uh, of comic creators, um, uh, and that's been amazing. We've had uh, I don't know three or four you know high profile showrunners and mm -hmm. um, and on and on and on. Uh, you know, more than a few people that have created a billion dollar franchises. <laughs> yes. And, you know, and it's been an, I think, I feel like it's been a nice mix. I think we've introduced people to comics and creators and filmmakers they've never heard of before. And also to people who like shaped their entire childhoods. <laughs> so, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's been a, it's, it's been good. And we, you know, we haven't talked about this off air, but I, I have no particular desire to stop, <laughs> you know? I mean, we may take more frequent hiatuses depending on how busy we are or are not. Uh, but- uh, Hiati. Hiati. But yeah, we just yeah. felt like going into the whole Thanksgiving, the Christmas to 
Kryptonica um, run, we would maybe not, you know, want to spend all of our time trying to round people up on their days off and all yeah. that. So, uh, so yeah, I, I've been thinking about, you know, we, I, I know the, the basic outline of uh, Ryland's origin story. He certainly knows the basic outline of mine and of my career, my ridiculous uh, wandering lost pony career. And uh, the first thing that I was thinking about, probably because I've been going through my own old papers, is what was the first creative writing thing you can remember doing? Uh, and, you know, <laughs> a lot, you know, the, the the ridiculous or the sublime it doesn't matter yeah i mean it, it's um i mean if you're talking about you know i mean you know physically putting pen to paper or mm -hmm. whatever is is a very different thing but i've talked about this a little bit where the still the greatest stories i've ever told in my life i told with my toys when i was right. a kid um and so because of that i mean we're we're now in my writing office and it is a you know it is a crazy toy museum and so i am surrounded by the toys that i played with when i was a kid those very toys and some of them are the actual toys i played with some of them some of those sure. toys were lost when i was in junior high and i watched too much beavis and butthead um <laughs> and took to breaking and burning things sure. uh some of them are some of them are the toys that um that i wished i had when i was a kid uh but being sure. a, a poor kid uh from a, a housing project in detroit couldn't get them so you know, uh, get older, getting a, a couple of dollars in my pocket and go out and get them. Um, so I write now surrounded by these things and they kind of speak to me and they inspire me and you know, right. it's part of my writing process. But, but back then that was where I started. I started right. telling these really grand, uh, stories with my, um, with my toys, you know, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, it's okay. Well, we're going to round everybody up and we're having a Kumite today. Right. Um, and here is a long list of the, the rules for the Kumite. And here is a uh, an arena, I, uh, a st sort of steel cage I created out of a milk crate and, and putting a box inside of it. And um, and here are blood effects and here are weapons that people are sneaking in. And this guy has a beef with that guy. And these two are going to team up and they're going to, you know, they're going to poison this guy's drink. And this is, with action, this is with action figures. Yeah, with action figures, yeah. with you know, GI Joe guys and He Man guys and um, and uh, Karate Kid figures, and it was like a, it was an all hands on deck thing. So let's get sure. some let's get some WWE uh, WWF figures in. Let's um, uh, you know, like um, you know, Elf would uh, Elf would be a, a very formidable opponent sometimes sure. in those depending on how I was feeling. Um, yeah, and I would tell these kind of grand grand tales with my my action figures, and then. Um, you know, and so it was, I mean, I was a, I was an only child. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time alone. Um, you know, uh, the, the son of a couple of alcoholics. And <laughs> so was fending for myself a lot. And, um, and, uh, you know, the TV raised me. I didn't have people tell me what, what was right and what was wrong and what I should be aiming for in life. Um, you know, I learned right and wrong. I learned drive and determination from Captain Picard and people like him on television. Um, and so stories shaped me. And so stories became really important early on. And so I started telling stories with my, uh, you know, my action figures. And then that, mm -hmm. that kind of snowballed. And in terms of putting pen to paper, you know, I remember in, um, I remember in elementary school having an assignment where, you know, okay, you just have, you have unchecked writing time, just sit down and write something. 
and people are writing this or that a story about their mom or their dog or whatever um and i wrote an a full episode of quantum leap and <laughs> like my fourth grade uh, uh writing class so um, you did a you did a spec writing sample in your fourth grade I did a, yeah i did a spec writing sample and it started it started out you know it started out with the whole intro you know mm-hmm. uh uh you know uh theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime dr sam beckett you know <laughs> stepped sure. into the quantum leap accelerator and vanished you know i mean we all we all start with imitation that's everybody's first steps are that yeah yeah and um you know when there, there was that and um you know so so uh, these are kind of important fence posts and then um you know and then you get to junior high and you have the friend who who whose parents have a video camera and i would go and stay the night over there on the weekend and we'd make ridiculous videos you know mm-hmm. um uh and 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 that was kind of how the the whole filmmaking started uh, sure. the whole, uh, so I, I remember making a martial arts video his I, I go over it's the first time i'm staying over his house and we have a hold of his parents video camera and um i did a lot of martial arts when i was a kid and uh and so we're gonna make a kung fu movie um and they had just had their basement refinished um so brand new drywall uh, oh boy perfect. i think i know what is mm-hmm. and we're doing this thing where i sort of choreographed this thing where you know i'm i'm going after somebody i throw a punch he dodges the punch he grabs me he flips me onto this bed well, he, he grabs me, I flip onto the bed, but I sort of over-rotate it, and my, my entire ass goes right through, right through the new drywall. And so there nice. is like a, there is a massive like ass print uh, plus in the brand new drywall that they just did. And, you know, his parents are, his nice. parents come home that night, you know, uh, after having a drink or two too many probably, and they see their beautiful new drywall destroyed by this kid who's staying over for the first time. Uh, and we have it all on video, um, nice. and uh, yeah, and so that that was you know that might have been my first like real filmmaking experience, uh, uh, you know, which I think is uh, is interesting. But um, you know, I think I really started honing my craft. Um, I was the I was the editor of the of my high school newspaper, mm. um, and I became the guy that did all the movie reviews, um, and you know, I was. I was doing a number of things there where it was like, I was, I was learning, I was learning to put into words what I liked about film, TV, about art. Um, I was sort of finding my voice with that, but my, my film reviews became short stories, basically. Like there was, there was the, you know, the A story of what was going on in the, uh, in the movie, but then there was this B story of my experience during the movie. And I, I created this nemesis character who would always ruin the movie for me. Like I would never see the end of the movie and I would never be able to tell my readers what happened in the end because this loud asshole would be in the movie theater and would always ruin it for me and send me, send me running or getting kicked out or whatever. Um, and so they were, they were, you know, part narrative short story and part movie review. And in writing those, I think I really found my kind of my voice, my springboard, my, my joy and just kind of spilling a story on out of the page. So I know that was like a, that was like five yeah, answers to your, that's, uh, those your, were, those were all good answers. And it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't raised by the TV quite so much, but my father was 100% raised by movies. And he in turn raised me with the same movies, mm-hmm. giving me the cultural background of a man born in 1924 
when I was born in 1965. I think it shows. So I'm a 10-year-old who is very excited to talk to fellow 10-year-olds about uh, Frank Capra and Gary Cooper and John Ford and Gene Arthur and Jimmy Stewart and Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn. Uh, and that, you know, that's its own interesting challenge. And my, you know, my dad was a Italian immigrant family, 17 brothers and sisters. And yeah, no one raised him. He was mm -hmm. absolutely every, like you, every idea he ever had about right and wrong. Uh, Frank Capra grievous, grievously misled him about how kind other human beings are and how good guys always do. <laughs> And in his George, I mean, you know, it's not as funny, but in his George Bailey moment, like literally he was like, well, obviously all my neighbors are gonna show up with baskets of money because I'm standing up to the man and I'm doing the right thing. And all of his colleagues, friends, family, everything pretty much abandoned him. And he went, huh, that's, I guess that's not, that's not how the world actually works. Sometimes everybody are finks and are yeah. scared and are cowards and, are co and cover their asses. So my childhood was like a balance of my father's optimism and my mother's slightly more pessimistic worldview. Um, and, uh, but again, I mean, it's funny that you say Captain Picard when I would say Captain Kirk, like I learned yeah. a lot of, <laughs> I was making a movie in 97 and in a very rare experience, my, my director of photography made a terrible mistake and lost about a half hour of footage the morning shooting with the one quote unquote movie star that we had for i only had him for two days this was the first day of shooting he was vital and he lost like half a scene and i blew up at him uh in the moment went outside took a deep breath came back in put my hand on his shoulder and said sorry mark i was a little i was a little surprised and taken aback but don't worry I have a plan for how we're going to make all this up tomorrow morning. Don't worry about it. Don't feel bad about it. Let's just get on with our day. And I cut home from work at that time. Uh, one of the local syndicated channels was showing Star Trek reruns. And that very night there was some Star Trek rerun where Bones is needling Kirk about something and Kirk blows up at him. And in the next scene, it's sorry, Bones. I, you know, we're all a little tense. It's things are rough and, you know, don't worry about it. And, you know, Bones is like, that's okay, Jim. I know you got a lot on your mind and blah, blah, blah. And I was watching that and I went, I learned my leadership style from Captain James T. Kirk. <laughs> the two things I learned is that be kind and treat the people that work for you like the smart professionals that they are and like human beings. And the other thing I learned, and I will say this with zero humility, <clears throat> is people will put up with a lot of arrogance from the guy whose plan always works. <laughs> if you're the guy whose plan always works, people will be like, well, he's kind of a he's he's he, he's kind of full of himself, but damn, he always beats the Klingons. So maybe we listen maybe we listen to this guy when there's a crisis and uh, and don't undercut him. So uh so we all, you know, we all take various lessons from uh from art, but that was one that really like I don't know that it would have occurred to me if those that incident and that seeing the same scene play out on Star Trek and going, oh yeah, that's where I learned that you, even when you're the boss, you apologize to an underling when you lose your temper in front of them because that's not appropriate. Just because you're the boss, you don't 
you don't yell at your best people and then not apologize to them because that's yeah. that's an abuse of power. So I thought that was interesting. But as far as uh, you know, and it's it's also just funny the generational things that are only separated by a decade or so. When I was a kid, there were no action figures. There mm -hmm. were Barbies and GI Joes, and everything mm -hmm. that wasn't a Barbie was a GI Joe. An Action Jackson was a GI Joe. Uh, I think Star Trek, the seven-inch Star Trek figures were the first. Like, well, what do we call these things? Uh, goes, yeah, yeah, and and then those book, and then Star Wars comes out, and those are definitely not GI Joes. Those are fully molded plastic, so those are the first action figures. Yeah. For me, it was partly because, again, generationally, but partly also my interest in military history my whole life. It was toy soldiers mm -hmm. more than. And I particularly liked, and again, Child of the Cold War, all of the, so many, excuse me, so many of the stories of the epic sagas I was doing with uh, Toy Soldiers were uh, post-apocalyptic. Nice. You know, and all of your various bad guys, your Nazis, your Japanese soldiers, whatever, were those were like, you know, your roving gangs, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you had those Vietnam era U.S. soldiers that were like the the thing that almost everyone from my generation thinks of as army men, the guys with the M16 rifles. We also had, we had Planet of the Apes action figures too, now that I think about it, which were in the same scale as the Miga, the Migo. So you had Captain Kirk and, you know, Dr. Zayas. You could, you could put those guys together. So that was some good storytelling. But um, for me, the only, th like, I know I wrote, some stuff. I remember the first short story I wrote that I was immensely proud of. I haven't thought about this in years, but it was a written, obliquely written story about, it was a sci-fi story about a black armored warrior fighting for, to defend his, defend a hill from an invasion of red armored warriors. And of course, at the end, you realized it was ants. Nice, nice. It was a story about like he had a number, <laughs> you know, he was, you know, soldier one, five, seven, nine, five, two or something like that. And he was fighting the red invader. And, you know, it was like three pages. And at the end, it's an anthill. And I was very, that was very proud of that. And uh, how, how old were you? Oh, I might have been 12. I think that was like okay. end of end of high end of uh, grade school, beginning of junior high. I think I wrote that on a typewriter. Because you know typewriters, and uh, that also shows, I think, what a huge influence the Twilight Zone was on me as a storyteller. Uh, that I was, I wanted something with the twist at the end. It's also interesting because that story only works as a short story. You can't. It's not a movie. That's not a comic book. That that gives away the joke right away. Um, so writing that in, uh, but yeah, the 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 local uh channel 11 wpix 11 had star trek on at six and nice. the twilight zone on at 11 p.m yeah and i would stay when when i was old enough i would stay up till 11 30 every night and watch the twilight zone and uh, those two things were like the poles of my childhood and you know and and what I thought good storytelling was. And I, you know, I did, there's that thing when you have our jobs, uh, especially when you work with licensed stuff where, 
you go, oh, all that time I spent doing that thing as a fan actually was research for a job I get paid for one day. And I wrote a Twilight Zone, uh, the Shadow crossover. It's like my, I think that was like my third gig in comic books. And the most fantastic thing about that gig was being able to do an impression of Rod Serling's writing because he was such a huge influence on me. And it's such a, it's such a really specific voice. Um, and I felt like, you know, it's that thing where you come to the work as a fan as well as as a professional. And I think I'm a Twilight Zone fan. If I'm reading a Twilight Zone comic book, I want the narration to sound like, uh, to sound like Rod Serling. You know, I want it, I want it to have that feeling. So like, you know, I tortured metaphors in a way I would not feel comfortable doing as a writer. <laughs> I think one of the, I think Twilight Zone, I think number three or number two starts with the narration starts with something like, uh, you know, it, it, it's an extended metaphor about breakfast. <laughs> all things. It's like, you know, for Kent Allard, you know, the uncanny is his buttered toast. The unusual is morning coffee. You know, it's just like stuff I would never necessarily do as myself. On an ordinary day, an ordinary man can expect to recognize the face he sees in the mirror. But Kent Allard is not an ordinary man, and he's having a far from ordinary day. Like, that yeah. cadence is so specific, and it's so great. I don't think I allowed myself a submitted for your approval. Like, I don't think <laughs> I went I don't think I went as far as picture, if you will, or submitted for your approval. But I did end everything with, you know, the Twilight Zone. Every, you know. A thing that he can only learn in the Twilight Zone. It, it, I mean, it, it's it's always great and gratifying when you can pull off that thing. You know, I mean, we were talking about suicide jockeys uh, early on, and um, you know, it's dripping with um, it's dripping with like '80s and '90s action influences. You know, um, I mean, with with all my stuff, I've talked about this before, but you can see the Die Hard DNA, the Beverly Hills Cop DNA, the Forty Eight Hours DNA, but it really it really calls back to this like specific, like sort of postage stamp of an action era uh, mm -hmm. that was like obsessed with like male machismo and swaggeriness. And, um, and, you know, I'm talking about, um, you know, sort of like mid to late nineties, like films like Con Air and, and, um, mm -hmm. and, and Armageddon and Face Off and The Rock. Um, and I set out to not just do one of those films, but sort of comment on one of those films. Sure. How, like the the attitudes of those films. Like a basically, I, I pluck a protagonist out of one of those films and put him in overly socially conscious, you know, 2021, right? And mm -hmm. then kind of see what sort of shitstorm happens, right? Um, and I set out to do that, and I did that. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you read the character and, and the readers come back and they're like, yeah, you nailed it. Like this guy walked mm -hmm. out of a Michael Bay movie in 1998 into a comic book in, in 2021. And that like, that feels cool. That, that, that feels well, awesome. That's the, you know, I always say that that's, you know, I am critical of those who simply remix and reuse without commenting. I think yeah. you have to, you have to comment. You have to, you know, you have to take it a little bit beyond, you know, all of, 
Star Wars would not be the phenomenon if its influences were only John Carter and Dune and Foundation. It's the it's the samurai thing and the Western thing and the World War II movie thing that lifts it out of just being Flash Gordon retread, which is what he was originally trying to do. You know, it's when you it's when you add to it and go what's the what's the thing they didn't think of when they did these what's the influence they didn't have and that's that's always going to get you just a more interesting story than just going i'm just making a 1997 action movie as michael bay would have done it and you know you can you can when you're working with that like i did a doc savage thing where i absolutely stuck to i was like no i actually want to write a 1938 now I gave it a modern sensibility. I gave it. I based it in a lesbian romance, which I don't think ever occurred to uh, Kenneth Robeson when he was writing those. But and that's the that's of course the pen name, not the real name. But um, yeah. but you know I. But even so, like I wanted to tell a story in the terms of 1938, and even the lesbian romance at the heart of it is treated the way people would have treated it in 1938 without saying yeah. things out loud or talking about it in public or blah, 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 mm-hmm. blah. All of the, all of the restrictions that would have been on it in the time uh, still apply. Well, I mean, um, it, it's, I mean, it's actually, it's a, it's a very interesting commentary on those stories because you wouldn't have been able to tell that story back then. You know, right. um, you told it in the exact same way and you were respectful in, in that way, but just the, the sheer act of telling that story Right. Um, is a comment is a commentary on the whole process and, and 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 it's subtle and it's interesting um and you know i mean you're not going to get anywhere kind of like bashing people over the head with with, with stuff yeah. it's, it's, well it's and like hard. i said i'm not a i'm not a big fan of like applying you know for all that uh you want to be as socially conscious as you possibly can be you also don't want people to behave in ways that are science fiction for the age that the story takes place in. I wrote a scene in uh, the, I did a five issue Betty page goes to England in 1953 to rescue, to rescue princess Elizabeth from an alien abduction story. And I had a scene where um, Betty page meets Winston Churchill. Now there are a lot of good things and a lot of bad things about Winston Churchill. He's a complicated cat. He was kind of a racist. He was definitely an imperialist and not at all, uh, not at all apologetic about it. And, but I couldn't write a scene in which Betty Page treats him like that, you know, because no one, you know, no white lady from America was thinking, oh, but the way you treat, like, it's just not appropriate. Mm -hmm. In the narrative after the scene, she says, you know, in the fullness of time, you know, Winston Churchill is a more complicated guy. But in 1953, he was the guy who had just beat Hitler. And to get a mission assigned to you from him was an awe-inspiring thing. <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about, you know, I, I didn't know that much about him at the time. To me, he was just the guy who beat Hitler. So I nod mm-hmm. in the direction of, this guy is more complicated than Betty Page thinks he is in 1953. And maybe in 1980, when she's writing this story in her diary, she's come to understand that this is the guy that called, you know, that called Gandhi a fake, (laughs) you know, 
that called that called Gandhi a fraud, you know, maybe that 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 is also this guy, but not in 1953 when he's sending me on a secret mission to save Great Britain. Um, yeah, you know, so I, I mean, in his in, in, in his defense, God, yeah. In his defense, Gandhi had gotten into the whole Amway thing at that point and, <laughs> and was trying to rope people in, and it got really complicated, and he was kind of soiling sure. his legacy. So sure. I'll give him a little leeway on that. Um, sure. So, so, so I, here's the question I've already, uh, I've always had. Like, so, um, you know, I mean, you, you talk about your first piece of writing. You, I, I guess you haven't fully, like, answered that question yet. But you grew up in a house with a writer, and not just any writer, a, like, rem remarkably prolific writer, a guy who had, I don't know. He wrote two hundred novels or something like that, something right? Like that. Um, and so, uh, and so, what is that like? How does it affect you um, in terms of like? It definitely in terms of it. It definitely uh, for one thing, no one ever had to encourage me that it was possible. Yeah, because that was a huge hurdle for me. Where it was yeah. like, I mean, I, I probably would have chosen to be a writer when I was, you know, fucking, I don't know, ten years old and writing a Quantum Leap episode. But you know, being a kid in a housing project in Detroit, like you weren't, you, yeah, you didn't no, I, I totally, yeah, it was I a totally fucking fairy that. tale. How do you get from here to there? But I'll it's like, you. well, it's it's sitting down the hallway from you. Sort of a sort of a side anecdote about that. When I was in college, one of my last jobs, I had a car. And there was this German art professor named Hugo Munsterberg, real name. And Great Hugo name. was the kind of guy who was a German Jew living in Berlin in 1930-whatever, sees what's happening, leaves Berlin, comes to the United States, and this is an art history professor. And the first thing he does is he enlists in the U.S. Army and says – what I want to do is teach German to American soldiers because who boy are you guys going to need to learn how to speak German very, very soon. He does this in like 33, 34. So very thoughtful and in his own way patriotic guy. Anyway, he was fascinated by my background, having the, you know, Jewish, you know, women's rights activist mother and the Italian-American novelist father. And I was, you know, planning to, even then I told, you know, when I'm in a month, when I get out of here, I'm going to California, I'm going to make films. And he thought that was the most, you know, a perfectly logical evolution from my upbringing. And I remember I once very, you know, sort of carelessly said something like, well, it's in the blood. And he said, you know, as someone who just managed to escape a Jewish, a genocide over the issue of Jewish blood, I'm uncomfortable with putting it like that. He said, your father, grow, your father grows up, in, and my father's father was a sculptor. It's worth mm -hmm. mentioning. Your, father's fa your father grows up in a culture and raises you in a culture where artist is a perfectly legitimate manly job that a manly man can have. Like, there's nothing weird. He's not some wasp dad going, what are you, some kind of fairy? You want to be a dancer? You know, like, a, <laughs> a, a, a working Italian man gets up and goes to the studio and makes a sculpture with his thing your father gets up sits at the typewriter there is nothing inherently you know it's a it's not the protestant work ethic of you got to go work in a factory you got to go be in an office it's like no it's perfectly acceptable for a man to spend his life making art for people your mother comes from a culture that values knowledge and education the word rabbi <laughs> means teacher after all
So he's like, you put those two things together, and of course you are the guy that you are. And it's it's those two cultures interact and create someone who wants to be a filmmaker. I wanted to say as an aside, the thing that's almost exactly the same with you and me, though again, generationally, it's a Super 8 camera, not a video camera. Mm -hmm. I had a friend in junior high named Brian Post. And Brian's family had a little more money than mine, probably a lot more money than mine. And he had a Super 8 camera and he had the pocket money to buy and develop film. And he had no particular knowledge or interest in filmmaking, but he had this toy he wanted to play with. And he literally came up to me in the seventh grade and said, you're like the film guy that loves film. I got a camera. Do you want to like, let's get together on weekends and shoot movies. And maybe I was born to be a comic book writer because the one of the first we made a movie that took place between Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back. Nice, because it's that it's that Jim Starlin thing of here's a here's a gap in the continuity that I must fill, <laughs> you know, which is a very comic book writer impulse. How did they get from Yavin Four to Hoth? That's yeah. a story someone has to tell someday, and I will be the one to tell it. So, uh, but that's what we <clears throat> and again imitation being the sincerest form of flattery. I wrote this thing called Return of the Empire that's like 30 pages long and it has ridiculously over-the-top scenes that we couldn't possibly afford to shoot. Uh, but we we kind of, we built, I think, three or four AT-AT Walker models. Mm -hmm. And I thought it would be cool to paint them camouflage because Yavin is the, the jungle planet. So they actually yeah. have like jungle camouflage on them. And we built in, the, in his basement a like, 10 foot model of the jungle on Yavin four with a little temple at one end. Uh, I think it was based on a step stool that I had. We like spray painted it Brown and put some stuff on it to make it look like the rebel base. And we shot stop motion of these things. And then we went out to the forest with five, six guys dressed in rebel soldier uniforms and had them running around and shooting up and whatever. And we cut it all together and it's a goofy little special effect sequence. But all of this was just like, we didn't know to make our own stuff. We didn't like that wasn't the first step. The first mm -hmm. way, and this is, you know, pre-YouTube, pre, you know, that great troops short on that, you know, really opened the floodgates on fan films. Uh, but we were just doing, and I wrote a Star Trek script that we never got around to. I wrote a Raiders of the Indiana Jones script. Like I wrote something for like every franchise we liked. <laughs> um, you, you, you're already doing branded, uh, uh... Oh yeah, and the other thing then. the other thing about that is like if you think about it like a Star Wars movie among everything <clears> else <throat> it's an excuse to buy a Imperial Star Destroyer model and build it and yeah. hang it in hang it on wires and shit like you're not just build like you're convincing yourself no this is I'm a, I'm a filmmaker I'm making I'm making Star I'm, I'm playing with my toys but it's really like and I think that impulse is behind like your action figure impulse that's behind all storytelling we're just playing with toys we're just playing you know orson wells famously said a movie set is the greatest you know train set any boy ever had and uh and you know god knows there's a lot to that so yeah god no i was just gonna say so when you're handed the keys to any one of these franchises that you dig like it's you know it's an exciting thing to be able to play with the toys because they're yeah. the toys you always wanted to play with you know I mean, it's it, it's it's funny you say that because the uh, I, I'm getting a little echo on your side. Um, the uh, 
you know, you, you, you grow up and you start working with, you know, big, bad filmmakers, guys making, you know, hundred, two hundred million dollar movies. Um, and, and this thing you're talking about, this sense of like, you know, I need to play with the toys, you know, I need to go out and get the coolest model. Um, it never leaves them. You know, you, you start working with Justin Lin and F. Gary Gray and Tony Scott. And it's like, you know what? I want to, you know, screw a train set. I want to play with an actual giant fucking train for, for, for an hour and a half. I, I, you know, uh, for a, a 90 minute, two hour movie, I want uh, a, a, a train barreling down a track that's unstoppable. I want helicopters flying all around it in every shot. Um, you know, uh, Justin Lin is like, you know what? Uh, I want a heist on a big fucking yacht out in international waters. Like that's my version of the ad at here. So go write it. You know what I'm saying? Like it's, it's not, not dictated by a story or anything. It's dictated by the toys. Like I want the ad at model. I want the fucking giant yacht. I want the helicopters. Um, you, you know, you know, what would be cool here is a fucking, um, is a Russian submarine chasing a Lamborghini on ice. Like those are the toys. Those are the toys yeah. I want to play with tonight. Yeah, absolutely, go out, go right. go out and write it. Like like that 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 initial sense that you're talking about as a kid, it never fucking leaves. You know. Oh yeah, and you know, I was talking to a friend today about my time, uh, for want of a better word, apprenticing with Andy Sedaris, and it was, you know, I went to film school and I got a good film school education, but three years out of film school, I was shooting a chase scene between a gyrocopter in Sedona, Arizona, firing rockets at two Playboy Playmates in bikinis driving a dune buggy. <laughs> and I just remember thinking, not an opportunity you get in film school to do this exact scene. Like, this is a scene, you know, and and there are, you know, the, the gyrocopter thing. If you look at my two uh, ghost-authored uh, Sedaris movies, uh, you can see traces of You Only Live Twice in Hard Hunted. And you can see huge traces of Diamonds Are Forever in Fit to Kill. It takes place in Vegas, and it's about a diamond. Um, yeah. And it's like, those were some of my favorite movies. They are, I'm not a believer in guilty pleasures, but I think you can know when something you love has enormous flaws that you are, uh, that that you, you are... Uh, what's the word predisposed to forgive <laughs> for yeah. want of a better word. Um, yeah. So those are, those are not great movies. I think they're both object lessons in like you only live twice. I would love to teach a film class about how you can do everything wrong and make something wild and crazy and vastly entertaining. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's a script by Roald Dahl for a James Bond movie for one thing. Uh, it's directed by a guy who had previously mostly directed drawing room comedies. Um, John Barry produces his most romantic score for a movie that's not really that romantic. Uh, it's just none of the parts fit together, and yet there's a magic to it. Um, uh, and there's a there's another there's a 1960s things I'm, thing I'm fascinated with, which is the inherent surrealism of Bond movies and why they work, and so many of their imitators don't is they don't nail the straight faced, they all have their tongue in their cheek. Yeah. And James Bond movies are like, no, we are taking this volcano fortress 100% seriously. When, well, you mean, see it, the it, big, it, when you see the big spaceship eating the little spaceship, 
John Barry's music tells you that something awesome and terrifying is happening, not a big spaceship is eating a little spaceship, which is yeah. fucking ridiculous. Well, yeah, you know? well, 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 yeah, well, two things on that. That's a great point in terms of what can make a movie great, even though it's maybe not great. You know, the first thing when you're, you're talking about this, you can make every wrong decision, but still make something that, you know, of course it's terrible, but it's also incredible. Um, mm -hmm. I thought of The Room, Tommy Wiseau. You know, sure. <laughs> uh, um, you know, insane movie and and might be the worst movie ever made, but it's also fucking incredible. And it's because that guy was 200 percent convinced that he was a genius, that he was making the next Citizen Kane. And it shows in every fucking decision, you know, mm -hmm. um, uh, and he was so convinced. It, it's just so earnest and honest and, and, and what he is doing and aiming for infects everything. And you can't help but get caught up in it. And it is a wonderful sure. ride. The, the, the other one, and this is a weird one, is is Jack Reacher. Have you seen Jack Reacher? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so you know, he, he, here's the thing: is like if you Jack Reacher is an interesting action movie because it's like um, there's like no irony to it at all. You know what I'm yep. saying? If you watch if you watch those Michael Bay movies that I talked about, like they don't take themselves seriously at all. It it, it is tongue in cheek, and it is about having a good time. Uh, 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 John McClane is superbly flawed and, and kind of, uh, you know, um, uh, even though he's fearless in one way, but he's a flawed coward in another way. And, uh, and, and Axel Foley kind of bumbles through, uh, the Beverly Hills Cop mm -hmm. movies, even though he's, you know what I'm saying? Like there is none of that in, in, in Jack Reacher. And so it's like, you, you, you look at Tom Cruise's career. And it's like, and, and, and to me, his best movies, like, you know, his really good critically acclaimed movies are where, uh, he accepts flaws. We all have flaws, right? But 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 here's the thing: is that you know Tom Cruise is obsessed with an image, right? And uh, and, and and so his best movies, like you know Rain Man and even Top Gun to a certain degree, and Jerry Maguire, they're about this perfect person, this perfect facade that starts to show cracks, that starts to right. crumble, right? Um, uh, in Magnolia, it completely falls apart. That is a really interesting journey to watch, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, his movies are less, less successful when he's just kind of an unfettered, unstoppable badass. Um, right. Never, never has it been so unfettered. <laughs> never has he been so unstoppable as he is in Jack Reacher. Um, uh, he uh, again, it, this movie takes itself one hundred percent seriously. He is the ultimate badass and all badass who can do no wrong. He walks on water. He walks into a room. Uh, uh, every woman immediately wants to have sex with him. Uh, every man is either terrified of him uh, and kowtows to him, or they they realize that 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 he is the he is the baddest motherfucker on the planet. And if they want to right. be the baddest motherfucker on the planet, they all, have to go all for five him. foot seven of him. Yeah, they test him usually in groups of three to five, and they pay a dear price for it. And and now they've learned their lesson. But but it just it takes itself so fucking seriously, and it is it is wondrous to watch because of that. You know what I'm saying? You can easily watch it and be like, "Oh, this is bullshit. I'm gonna turn it off." But if you if, if you go into it being like, "There is a there is a a very clear thesis to this film," yeah. and they stick to their guns and they execute it beautifully, and it is fucking glorious to watch. And then you throw in like Werner Herzog as the uh, as Herzog the is great. Uh, I I am. I, I have no I have no knowledge of those books, which are very, very popular. Yeah. In the world of pulp men what call what are called men's adventure novels, readers, that movie is a crime against humanity. 
<laughs> because because Tom Cruise is not six five. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack Reacher is that's like the, six five. That is, and, and that's literally <laughs> that is that is literally the beginning and end of their problems with it. Is that yeah. they read these books and they loved these books. Yeah. And suddenly it's Tom Cruise who's like they're picturing Nick Nolte in his prime, like Nick Nolte in shape, which is yeah. hard to imagine, but Nick Nolte in shape in his prime, mm -hmm. like just a big hulking man. They're picturing yeah. Arnold without the yeah. accent and they got little Tom Cruise uh, yeah. and they just can't. Those, those dudes who love those books hate that movie with a white hot passion. And I saw it knowing nothing about the books and I found it perfectly goofy and entertaining and it had no, uh, in the Mission Impossible movies, he's got Lalo Schifrin helping him out. Uh, he's got that, that theme. Those, the theme is unbeatable. Movies, yeah. you're, you're excited. And Chris McQuarrie's a great writer and a great director and he does just fine yeah. with that. You yeah, know, well, I, 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Chris, yeah, Christopher McQuarrie was, you know, he, I mean, he's, he's, uh, he was all in on Jack Reacher also. So, it, it, you know, it, yes. it has that DNA to it. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. No, it's, yeah, it's, re it's real. No, I, I prefer Cruz when he's playing monsters, when he's playing psychopaths, when he's playing, like, I, I appreciate that he's willing to do it when he's willing to do it. And it seems like he's willing to do it if you're a director who has at least been nominated for an Oscar. He will yeah. play a funhouse mirror version of his self image, mm -hmm. which I think is actually, I think he's much closer to the guy in collateral than he is to Ethan Hunt. Like yeah, the guy yeah. in collateral, yeah. the assassin in collateral is who, who uh, Tom Cruise is in his soul, but he thinks yeah. he's Ethan Hunt. And I think the guy in collateral thinks he's Ethan Hunt. You know, that's yeah. the, you know, in his, when he looks in the mirror, he sees James Bond. He doesn't realize he's a psychopath, you know, and that's, uh, and again, I don't know that Cruz knows that about himself when he's making those movies. And that's, uh, but again, we've it's a, uh, it's that thing of what you bring, the intention you bring to a project, and what you're commenting on, and what you're, what you're willing to say about it. You know, the thing about uh, Diamonds Are Forever, I'm a big listener of uh, directors' commentaries, and. Uh, Guy Hamilton, who directed Goldfinger, who directed Diamonds Are Forever, who directed Live and Let Die, directed a lot of action movies over his He also directed Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Love it. Uh, but when you're making the sixth one, the you know, he nails the job of someone making genre entertainment in one observation. He's talking over the scene where Connery is going to find Willard White in his uh, in his Vegas desert architectural wonder house, and he finds Willard White guarded by a pair of hundred pound lady gymnasts. Mm -hmm. And on the on the commentary, and to me this is just, this is the whole job. On the commentary, uh, Guy Hamilton, who at the time was you know already ancient, says, "So in the script, Sean goes to see Willard White." And there's some big fellow and they have a fist fight. And well, we've seen it, haven't we? I mean, we've seen it and we've seen it and we've seen it. I was watching the Olympics with my wife <laughs> and I was watching the gymnasts and I was looking at these women twisting and turning and jumping. And I said, my God, these women are terrifying. <laughs> it's like, wouldn't it be funny to see 200 pound 
live young girls <laughs> beat the crap out of a six foot four Scotsman, that would be a really funny, interesting. Un we've never done that. We've never had two young women absolutely demolish Connery, and he only basically wins by using his weight against them uh, when they all fall in. A, they all get in a pool together. But and in an earlier scene in it, the scene where Connery is just fighting another big guy could be the most boring scene in the movie. Mm -hmm. And it takes place on a really small elevator in an old apartment building. That's one of those European elevators that's three foot by three foot. And you got two over six footers in it trying to punch each other. Yeah. And they literally can't. <laughs> Connery goes to throw the first punch and his elbow goes through the glass <laughs> plate behind him because he doesn't have room. And yeah. that came from the production designer, Ken Adam, lived in one of these old London apartment buildings and they're going to see him. And it's Guy Hamilton and the two producers who were not small men jammed into this three foot by three foot British elevator that moves it in, um, you know, a mile of an hour. Mm -hmm. And they're stuck in there like this. And Hamilton says, wouldn't it be funny if the pipe fight between Bond and Peter Franks takes place in an elevator like this one, because how impossible is it to even get far enough away from someone to punch them? And again, like to me, all that we do, everything's been done. Everything's been done a million times. I always, you know, Guy Hamilton's voice is always in my head when I'm writing an action scene. It's always, mm -hmm. well, we've seen it, haven't we? So how do you get past the Guy Hamilton nagging voice saying, how do you turn the big hulking guy into two 18-year-old girls? And how do you turn the fist fight with the big hulking guy into a crazy thing that takes place in an elevator the size of a coffin? So to me, like, that's, the, that's a first principle. You know, when you approach... I just, you know, when I'm watching, when I'm watching television or a movie and somebody says, we've got company, I just go, how do you write that line and get, how do you look at, how do you look yourself in the mirror Yeah. after you've written the line, we've got company? Like, I get it. Every once in a while, someone's got to say, let's go, because it's a thing. Human beings say, let's go yeah. all the time. Human beings also say, we've got company a lot because human beings have seen every bad action movie you've had. But you, you can't not comment on it. There's a great little, uh, it's not great, but there's a very solid little David Mamet movie. I think it's called Heist. Mm. Uh, it's got the very generic title of Heist. And at the yeah. end, Danny DeVito is threatening, uh, is threatening uh, Gene Hackman. And he says something like, you're not going to make me count to three, are you? <laughs> you know, he puts a gun on it to him and he says, don't make me, like, come on, man. <laughs> like, we don't have yeah. to do the counting to three thing. That we, don't, we don't know does. how this goes. Yeah, you know, that's funny. It's, yeah. uh, you know, and you got to, and, and when you write those cliches, I wrote, a, I wrote a script once that opens with two, you know, business associates uh, in a criminal enterprise who have turned on one another and, tried to kill one another and uh you know one of them the bad guy says something along the lines of or the good guy says something about all along the lines of so you're telling me this wasn't personal and the bad guy says you really want me to quote the godfather at you you know like are we really mm -hmm. gonna have the dumb it's just business conversation yeah. because people are familiar with the tropes and if you can't yeah. play with the tropes you can't 
you know, you're just making the scene that everybody's seen a thousand times. And in my experience, the audience, lo there's, there's a, I have it somewhere. Uh, I'll send it to you if you're interested. There's Billy Wilder's like 12 things to always remember about writing a movie. Yeah. It's all it. great yeah. stuff. It's like, if you have a third yeah. act problem, you don't have a third act problem. You have a first act problem. Yeah. Uh, but one of them is, and it, I think he even says, quoting Lubitsch, let an audience add two plus two and they will love you forever. Yeah. And I try yeah. to do that as much as humanly possible. My, uh, my, my friend, Fernando Treva, who's actually directing this film that, uh, um, that uh, is shooting in the spring uh, that I wrote, um, he won the Oscar for foreign language film uh, a few years back with a, a film called Bella Poke out of mm -hmm. Spain. And, um, and, you know, one of the more famous Oscar moments, he gets up there, he's, he accepts his Oscar, and he says, I don't know if I believe in God, but I believe in Billy Wilder. Um, <laughs> so he, he's like the biggest Billy Wilder fan in the world. So like uh, when we first started working together, he, you know, he, he got me a, uh, um, he got me like a, he had sort of made this like bound copy of that. Uh, um, of the know, 12. Lister, the, yeah. yeah. No, it's a, talking about it and gifted it to me. So uh, yeah. Yeah. That's good. Stuff. I, I found it. Yeah, I found it somewhere and, you know, pasted it in a document that I look at yeah. all of the time. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, it's like it's surprising your audiences. I mean, particularly now because there is so much out there. When we were growing up, you know, we had, you know, we had three networks, right? You know, right. A, a couple of UHF stations that showed uh, uh, reruns. You could um, you could go down to Seven Eleven and grab some comics off a spinner rack. But like now, there is so much fucking shit yep. out there, and 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 people consume so much. They've seen so much, like, and and so so surprising people is so difficult. Right. And, oh, and, yeah. and that's what, that's, you know, and if we're getting down to the nuts and bolts of what we do, like my, when I am planning a comic issue, um, I try to surprise the reader twice in an issue, have like a sort of like a, you know, an early twist and a late twist. Mm -hmm. Um, you, you think things are going this way and boom, we make a, a hard left turn. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I think readers genuinely respond to that, you know, like oh, they, 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 they have such a, they have such a history with storytelling that like they see shit coming a mile away. You know what I'm saying? It's, mm -hmm. um, uh, it, it's, I've driven my, my wife nuts, uh, for years with this where it's like, and, and they've gotten a little bit better at this because there are a lot of people out there like me, I'm not special, but, um, a few seasons ago, I could tell you who was going to win that week on Top Chef and who was going to go home in about five minutes. Just just seeing how they were setting up the story, I'm like, okay, well, she's going home. This guy's winning this week. And, and I would be right 95% of the time. Um, we just, as, as, as an audience, as a reader, we have such a sense of where the drama's going. And so, and comic books are worse because comic books are made quickly. Um, uh, they're not as thoughtfully told sometimes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, and so, you know, I can start reading through a comic and like, it moves in a straight fucking line. I, 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 oh, I can yeah. tell you where it's no, going to end up. It's going to end up. In a, yeah. And so, and so anytime you can surprise them and like, like the, w w w the greatest lesson I ever took was from, uh, was from fucking Richard Nixon. It's a, uh, a, 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 an example from history. So Nixon is impeached. Uh, uh, he, uh, uh, um, you know, he, 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 he resigns, he has to leave the white house. He is doing sort of the walk of shame out to Marine one. This is the worst moment of his fucking life, right? Horrible moment for the country. 
uh, our president is, uh, is, is, is leading um, in disgrace. Um, everybody's watching on television as, as he does this walk of shame out to Marine One. Uh, and, and he gets to Marine One. He's about to, to get in and fly off to, to you know, mediocrity and, 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 uh, and, and villainy, like, you know, in the annals of history. And what does he do? <laughs> he turns around and he goes. <laughs> yeah. He, 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 he flashes he, the victory he, sign. A, a double victory salute to, uh, you know, to, to, to the world, to the White House, to, to everyone. And yep. nobody fucking saw that coming. You could not write that in a million years. And if you wrote that, you deserve a fucking Oscar. You deserve a fucking EGOT, well, you know? Uh, just, gonna, just hand somebody an EGOT yeah. for writing that. No, I was going to say that. Like, it's like, that's what you're aiming at. You oh, know, yeah. if you can surprise people like that with that sort of like irony and thematic, I don't but know, just meets, right? The, the other aspect to that, which I was going to mention is, yeah. and, it's, and it's true there too, the tr the great trick of writing fiction and particularly writing entertaining fiction is it has to be surprising and inevitable yeah when someone it makes, sees it makes that, total fucking sense when when someone sees that they go holy shit that's the craziest thing in the world but it's exactly what richard nixon would do yeah. it totally makes sense that he would do that cuz it's fucking insane you yeah. know and that's the the tightrope we all walk is that thing of like, you want to surprise people, but it can't be like, and you read things absolutely that are like, this is just shocking. Yeah, yeah. Alan Moore fucked everything up because he, he was good at the everything you know is wrong thing, but his everything you know is wrong was always really well thought out. Mm -hmm. It's inevitable for Swamp Thing, whose entire arc is that of a human being trying to retain his humanity. He takes it over and says, but he's not actually a human being. Yeah. That's been an illusion he's been living with. He's just a fucking plant that thinks he's a human being. And it, it, so many people have tried to repeat that trick. But that trick amplifies, it takes the tragedy and makes it operatic. It makes it even, it's even more tragic that the monster could never have regained his humanity. There was no humanity to regain. He was never Alec Holland. He was a thing that thought it was Alec Holland. And that's genius. And then you get the people that come along and go, you know, oh, I'm going to write Superman. What if Krypton never exploded? It's like, that's not, that's, yeah, not, well, it, that's not the thing, man. And even though like, one of the things I hate the most is when they try to connect the dots too much and go, no, the guy that shot his parents was the Joker. That's, that's horrible. <laughs> that is yeah. horrible writing Yeah, because it, it's not, that doesn't enhance anything. That's just a lazy yeah. writer going, I know how I can shock you. The Joker is yeah. Joe chill. It's like, no, he's no, that yeah, fucks it, up the it, whole it, relationship. It's like a one more Batman twist culture. Yeah. Because then Batman could break his neck and then stop being Batman. I did it. I got revenge for my folks. I'm done. Thanks. Thanks, yeah. everybody. Going home. Don't ever have to be Batman again. You know, yeah. and that's the it and that's the real trick is to do the thing where the audience goes, Wow, I didn't see that coming. But on the other hand, holy shit, that's how it had to end all along. My wife yeah. was a huge she's not the only one that thought this, I'm sure. My wife was a huge Harry Potter fan. 
And then yeah. she got to the last book and put it down and said, this whole series only makes sense if Harry becomes the defense against the dark arts teacher in the last book. Mm-hmm. And they sh- and she didn't do that. She didn't yeah. like, that's the thing we were building towards. That's the logical yeah. inevitable, you know, thing. And we didn't actually yeah. go there. A friend of mine, lifelong James Bond fan. I, I did a, I am, I did a podcast with this great, this woman named Emily Edwards who has a great podcast called Fuck Boys of Literature. And she wanted me to come on and do Casino Royale. And I told her, you're going to be very surprised from them. If all you know Bond from is the movies, that book is going to surprise you. And she was like, you're right. He's not actually, this book is actually how he became a fuck boy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not, it's not about this guy who's this fully formed. I've been a fan of these books and movies since I was a kid. She made a connection I had never made before. And it's, it makes me more impressed with Ian Fleming as a novelist. Mm-hmm. 10 books at the end of Casino Royale, spoiler alert, he finds out that the love of his life is a Russian agent because she commits suicide and leaves him a note. Mm-hmm. And you can hear his heart hardening into ice. He calls the boss and says, the bitch is dead. She was working for Redland. And he's a completely different person than he was on page one. Mm-hmm. He's now this guy that doesn't give a shit, that will kill anyone, that will do anything, that understands the stakes of his job in a way that he never understood them before. We were talking about other books in the series, and I said, well, Honor Majesty's Secret Service is the one where he gets married, and it opens with him saving a woman who's trying to commit suicide. Now, just saying that aloud, you know what connection she made that I had yeah. not made in 40 years of looking at that material. She said, oh, James Bond is trying to correct the the thing that went the most wrong in his life is that the love of his life committed suicide. He meets a beautiful enigmatic woman and sees her walk into the sea and saves her from it. And of course Mm -hmm. he falls in love with Ornwan because she's the Vesper that didn't manage to kill herself. And again, it's like, I never made that connection that James Bond falls in love twice in the books and they're both suicides. And they're both yeah. women who try to commit suicide, um, which is also the value of like coming to a thing like that with completely fresh eyes and going, mm-hmm. oh, sure, that his love life connects in this interesting way. Uh, and actually, my pitch to I pitched James Bond to Dynamite finally uh, have no idea if they'll buy it. But my pitch is all about suicides, is all yeah. about James Bond and his relationship with with death and with people who choose the time of their own death. Um, because she, and it's all because of her going, Oh, yeah, here's the subtext in the James Bond love stories is suicide, is people who want to yeah. destroy themselves, and that's you know, and that kind of excavation of the material that's where you get yeah. the good stuff, you know. Yeah, there was a there was another one that got me. It's um, did, have you watched Magnum BI all the way through? I'm vaguely familiar with how it wraps up. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I mean, Thomas Magnum is, you know, he's, he's a good, decent, honest guy. Right. And, um, and eventually as the series progresses, he gets married and there is a, a villain that ends up killing his wife. Right. And Magnum spends, you know, most of this final season chasing this guy. He catches up to him in the end. And the Thomas Magnum thing to do is to arrest this guy you know, uh, see that he spends the rest of his life in prison. Um, 
that sort of thing. And that's what you expect Thomas to do. That's what Thomas, that's what Thomas for six seasons would have done. However, this Thomas has been changed uh, radically by the death of his wife. The one woman that he ever loved this, you know, he, 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 you know, the story of Thomas Magnum is a guy who came back from Vietnam uh, and, and couldn't find stable ground and couldn't deal with the stuff he had to do over there. It's very much like my dad. Right. Um, and, you know, spends six seasons while solving crimes and, and, and drinking pina coladas on the beach, uh, eventually kind of building himself back into a, a, a human being, you know, someone with direction. And, and this woman ends up being part of it, part of that, you know, helps some kind of like, there's this huge piece of him that's missing and she sort of fills this. She makes him a complete person and then she's gone. Right. Well, this episode comes to an end where Magnum has the, has, has the gun trained on the guy. And the cops are coming. And, you know, of course, like, this guy took your wife. You want to shoot him, but that's not what Thomas Magnum does, right? Thomas Magnum lowers his gun, lets the cops come in, arrest this guy, and take him off. And uh, you're, you're waiting for that to happen. And he hesitates for a minute. And then the gun comes up, and he shoots the guy right between the eyes. Um, and this was on network television mm -hmm. in I the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Thomas Magnum shoots a guy in the face <laughs> and it just blew my fucking mind. You know, yeah. I mean, talk about be talk about being shocked, talk about being stunned, talked about you didn't see that coming. But like you said, then you go back through and you do the math, right? Um, and uh and 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 you know, again, this guy fought in Vietnam like very valiantly. He was he was special forces. Uh this guy is killed in his life. He's had to. Right. Um, and, and it is in him, even though he's gotten so far away from it. Um, and what's interesting about it is, it, you know, it, it, it makes sense. Like like he he let any of us could let revenge kind of take hold of us, uh, that thirst for revenge, take hold of us for, for an instant and do that. Right. And then you you sort of foresee this future, the rest of his life where he now has to, after years trying to process what happened in Vietnam, him having to come to terms with that because he is, you know, in his heart, in his soul, uh, in his mind, a very good, kind, decent guy who just shot a man in the face in cold blood. Um, and it's so, uh, there's just so much to that, you know what I'm mm -hmm. saying? And sort of, that's what you strive for. And, and, well, and the reason, the, the reason, I, the reason I thought of it is because they, they ripped that moment off in Jack Reacher and it's not, it's not quite as, uh, as mm -hmm. successful, yeah. but, um, but, but, uh, Jack Reacher finally, you know, he, he's got a gun pointed at Werner Herzog, uh, and, and, and Werner's just like, well, you know, they're going to arrest me and, you know, it's going to be my word against yours. I'm, I'm never going to, you know, I'm never going to spend a, a day in jail, who cares if I do like an American prison, uh, 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 you know, um, compared to the Russian prison that I spent, uh, uh 10 years, uh, in, uh, uh, where I had to gnaw my own fingers off to fight frostbite and, and all right. these things. Like it's going to be like a stay in a hotel and, and Jack Reacher's just like, you're right. And then he shoots him right between the eyes. Right. And again, he didn't see it coming. I mean, in the context of that movie, it's pretty fucking brilliant. It's not quite the, uh, it's not quite the character thematic, uh, uh, triumph that the Magnum PI one is, um uh but but these are interesting you know yeah, um, well, and, I mean, I, and that's the thing they're consistent with character and it reminds me yeah, of yeah. harlan ellison always had a big chip on his shoulder about how city on the edge of forever got rewritten and in his version captain kirk can't kill edith keeler and spock has to do it and at the end spock says look you you know for what it's worth you loved someone so much you were willing to let the whole universe go for it and that's a great story about someone who is not James T. Kirk. Kirk is defined by sacrifice. It's the it's literally all he's got. 
is that he's given up everything to be this guy who's on the cutting edge of, you know, saving the world and saving the universe. And no, that experience is not enough to change him into someone who's going to turn his back. Falling in love with Joan Collins is 19, in 1936 is not going to make him different in that way because that's not what defines him. And it's that it's funny because I would I would see interviews with Harlan before I read his version. And it was funny. It's like the unreliable narrator thing in fiction where Harlan is telling you how much better his story is. And you listen and go, no, that's not better, though. <laughs> that's, actually, that's, actually quite a, that's actually quite a bit worse. And it doesn't work as Star Trek. And it's a bad it's a great short story about a bunch of other people who aren't the crew of the Enterprise. But that's not a good story about Captain Kirk it's not a Captain because story, because you haven't earned it. Yeah. Because Kirk is only meeting Edith Keeler because he's on a mission to restore the future, which has been destroyed. Mm -hmm. And he's known her three days. And the idea that Captain Kirk is going to throw away the future of the United Federation of Planets for a woman he's known three days, no matter how strongly he feels about her. Yeah. That's not the good story. The good story to tell is he lets this woman die and it haunts him for the rest of his life. And it doesn't, it, it changes who he is in the sense that it, it hardens him as the guy he is. Yeah. Of like, yeah, I, you think I'm not going to make a sacrifice? This is my thing. All I do mm -hmm. is give up my own happiness to save the universe. You can't bribe me with anything. You know, you can't offer me a better deal than anything. You know, I've, I've, I've paid too much to be this guy and do this job. And that's the, you know, and by the same token, just to go off on one more little tangent, the great thing about these characters is that you can hit a topic in a way you couldn't with a non-iconic character. Kirk's racism against Klingons in the sixth Star Trek movie would be completely unpalatable if you didn't know where it came from and who he is and why he feels that way. And by the end of the movie, he goes, you know what? I was a bigot and I was wrong. But at the beginning of the movie, Spock says to him, Jim, they're dying. And he says, let them die. <laughs> you know, yeah. like They killed yeah. my son. They've hounded me my entire friggin' life. Good. Fuck them. Let them die. And that's a yeah. terrible attitude that's in keeping with what we know about the character. As good yeah, a man well, as he is, this is the one thing he can't forgive. Yeah, well, I mean, same t same token. Like, if, if if Thomas Magnum shoots a guy in the face at the end of episode one, who gives a shit, right? Mm -hmm. But 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 I, but after six seasons, you know, um, yeah, it's got power. Uh, it, it, it has. It is a you know, yeah, it is a like spinning back kick to the you know, to the nuts, you know, yeah. um, uh, and, and and packs a wallop. So no, and it's agreed. and it's the the joy of playing with these with characters over a long period of time is you get to build up all of this. You know, uh, I won't call any of these characters realistic, but in the in the sense of them having more complicated psychologies than just being a good guy or a bad guy, uh, you know, there's there's something to be said for that, you know, and for 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 you, I always feel like you have to take you have to take the work and the particularly when you're working with someone else's characters, but you have to take what's come before seriously and what, what can you say about it without violating it? You know, the, the, the HBO Watchmen miniseries, uh, instead of going, I'm just going to rewrite Alan Moore because fuck Alan Moore, mm. 
he went, well, it's a work of genius, but it's an Englishman who doesn't understand the centrality of race to American culture. So I'm going to take his board, I'm going to take his story, and I'm going to talk a- exclusively about the one thing he didn't get to. The one thing that he completely left out of his story was any idea of the centrality of race in American history, politics, and culture. That's the one thing you, there's only one thing you can improve on Watchmen, and it's this thing that Alan Moore forgot to talk about. And I I don't even know that you can call it a flaw in the original. It's just an unaddressed issue. So he goes, here's the one unaddressed issue, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to dive into that. That's the thing that's left to do with Watchmen. There's not a lot left to do with those characters after that story is told, except that one thing. And there's a genius to finding what's the thing. The Twilight Zone, the shadow thing was a huge challenge because the shadow is flawless. The shadow is perfect. The shadow can read people's minds and see if they're good or evil. And I had to come up with something that the Twilight Zone would punish him for. Because yeah. that's how the Twilight Zone works. Mm-hmm. And I made it the, the theme of the thing. And so literally it said to his face is there's no justice without mercy. You are without mercy. When someone is evil, you shoot them. <laughs> and in the fourth issue, he meets a 17-year-old kid who's an American Nazi. And he takes a breath and says, "How? why? Mm-hmm. How did these people enlist you? How did you become this? Who talked you into this? Instead of just going, oh, you're a Nazi? Blam, 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 blam. <laughs> Which is what he does literally on the first page of the first issue. Is he yeah. guns, guns down a whole bunch of Nazis for laughs. Um, and to me, that's, you know, not trying to break my arm, patting my own back, but there wasn't a lot, like there weren't a lot of other op- alternatives. You yeah. can't you can't teach the shadow to be a better detective. You can't teach him to be smarter. Like the what's the what he misses is human empathy. He cares yeah. about justice. He doesn't give a shit about empathy. And can you have justice without empathy? Actually, you can't. So you know that's the that was the lane left open to me yeah. for want of a better for want of a better word. Yeah. But we should wrap up. Let's talk about future things. What are your future things? It, this is the last issue of the first arc of Suicide, uh, of Suicide Jockeys. Jockeys. Yeah. yeah. First question, will there be future arcs? Uh, conceivably. Um, yeah. I'm still uh, I'm still working that out. I mean, uh, I'm looking at future arcs of Suicide Jockeys. I um, I, I believe I, I insinuated at the very least in previous episodes that um, uh, I have the Banjax property back and I have right. been talking to publishers about that and so I would like to finish up Banjax. Um you know, I did the, it, it was originally, um, uh, I envisioned two four issue arcs. And so I did the first one. Um, uh, and we'll see. The problem is I'm like absurdly busy right now. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, comics wise, I'm finishing up, uh, uh, the peacekeepers I'm finishing up the jump and, you know, uh, I have, uh, you know, issue three of the jump is being drawn. I have another issue to do before that really? kind of goes to a publisher um issue five of peacekeepers is gonna is being drawn that's a six issue uh uh, arc um so i'm finishing those up i am finishing up uh my my wuxia thing for uh immortal studios right now fa shun Mm -hmm. that's going really well uh issue one's being drawn of that at this point so i'm busy what's the 
What's the movie that Trueba is shooting? Uh, well, 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 that's the thing. Is so, uh, yeah. So it, it's called Haunted Heart. Uh, um, stars uh, Matt Dillon and a, a Spanish actress named uh, Ida Fulch, who um, has a uh, you know has a, a Goya and you know a bunch of European Film Award nominations and stuff like that. Uh, um, but yeah, that's being shot in Greece uh, next spring. Um, I found out recently too that uh, there's there's a movie that I wrote that takes place in uh, uh, Germany, uh, in East Germany, during um, you know when the uh, Berlin Wall was uh, you know was uh, was still up. Um, mm -hmm. About this, um, I mean, it's a true story about these college students who um, kind of fall in love with American music, um, and they start kind of sneaking american music into the country and throwing these parties and they actually start this like pretty significant political movement um and end up uh you know being investigated by the stasi and arrested and in prison and they escape prison it's uh it's a really amazing true story and uh we get to sit down with the actual guys and kind of get to know them and get to know the world and tell this story um but we just brought a pretty high high profile you know oscar nominated director onto that and um that is currently slated to be shot in the spring also <laughs> so nice. i have a movie in post i have two movies that are um uh you know that are that are now scheduled to uh to shoot in the spring and then um you know and then the the tv show i sold the Lionsgate is heating up and um nice. it could be that we're commenced on eight episodes of the tv show uh um, in the spring also. So, uh, so my 2022, uh, could be kind of insane. Um, I have a hard time believing that all of those things are going to happen at the prescribed, sure. the currently prescribed time, uh, because that's not how Hollywood works. However, um, it's a lot. So if you ask me what's coming next in terms of, uh, comics, there's a lot of stuff I would love to do. Um, I don't know if I'm going to have time sure. uh, or, or the, or the sanity to do it, particularly with a, you know, a five-year-old kid who I'd, I'd like to see every once in a while, but, um, that's where sure. I'm at. But, uh, and, yeah. and I'm sorry if you already, what stage is the TV show at? Uh, the, uh, the, the, the TV show, uh, we, we sold it to a studio. Um, we are mm -hmm. having the network conversations now. Um, and, uh, we have, uh, three, you know, very big, very interesting stars attached to it. Um, and we have David Diggs from Hamilton, who's the lead on Snowpiercer right now. We have Raphael Casal, who's, uh, one of the leads on the, in the, the, the showrunner EP on, uh, on, uh, the blind spotting TV series on stars. And then we have, oh, uh, nice. Emmy Raver Lat Emmy Raver Latman, who's, uh, one of the stars of Umbrella Academy. Sure. Um, and then we were actually, um, we are talking, uh, to Jamie Foxx about, playing a very significant role right now great. um so so it's real but but uh long with a way of saying that like the actors can do it next fall um right. and that and that and that never happens um and so yeah. everyone involved uh has um has every reason to get this going in the fall which means that like we need to start writing uh very soon sure. so um so I'm expecting to um, I'm expecting to be writing very soon. <laughs> uh, Good. That's, look, so, that's great. Yeah, so it doesn't leave a lot of room for you know uh, too much extracurricular stuff. And I only have two words to say to you. Like yeah, Rodney Barnes. Yeah, yeah, no shit. <laughs> yeah, I, I I need to have a long talk with Rodney and figure out how he does it because yeah, I, I don't know I, if I it's Rodney, I don't know if it's clones yeah. or you know uh, diet pills or I don't know what Rodney's running on, but. Yeah, you know. he's he, he's fucking jet fuel. Yeah, I mean that guy's yeah. amazing. Um, I think his kids are older than mine, um, and I, I think that helps. That helps. Uh, 
Um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know how he's. Um, yeah, people like people are sometimes awed by the number of balls that I juggle. Uh, Rodney puts me to a serious yeah. shame. So Same. so yes, yes. And the, I need you know, to... and and the thing is, people don't realize that there's no other way than the juggling of balls because yeah. at any anyone who says this is my thing and I'm running with it and this is the thing that I'm running with. Well, then that thing gets canceled or the executive that said yes to it loses their job. And then suddenly you have nothing and you're doing nothing and you're working on nothing. So we all of us are stuck in this position. It's very rare that you're in a spot where you can say, I am just going to do this one thing. I'm going to do no other thing. I'm not going to develop the next thing. I'm, I'm just going to like, no, you really, that's not how it goes. You have to keep a bunch of things going. Yeah, it's a, it's a dozen balls in the air at all times, and 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 every month, uh, one, two, three of those balls is going to fall, and you got to get yeah. one, two, three more back up in the air. Otherwise, yeah. you and, and and you know, while we've been doing all this stuff that I'm talking about, uh, I you know, um, my my film TV writing partner and I, we just finished two uh, two more short stories. Um, you know, most of, most of what we set up uh, recently has been um, you know based on short stories we've written. The TV series is based on sure. a short story that we've written and actually sold a couple of times. Um, so yeah, I mean, you gotta, you gotta keep the, that hopper filled, man, or, uh, yep. or, or you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna run out of fucking shit. Yeah. Um, no, no kidding. So, yeah. What, uh, what's, uh, what's going on with, uh, with you? What's next? Well, I have pitched a follow-up series to Elvira meets Vincent Price, which is a fun horror movie based, uh, series coming next. If it comes, it'll be called Elvira in horror land. Um, which will be good, clean, wholesome American fun. I've got a couple of El other Elvira things going on. The uh, There's a com pretty much completely finished Kickstarter comic about her 40th anniversary playing the part, all drawn by the amazing Sylvia Califano, um, ready to go. I don't know when they're going to actually launch the Kickstarter. Um, I have a bunch of, like, you know, talking about the balls in the air, I have a bunch of pitches out that I'm not sure where I'm going to, I feel pretty confident that someone's going to pick this one up. Um, I'm just keeping, I don't want to be too elliptical, but I'm keeping the, uh, I can't really say where that's going to go. That's the, the world war two thing called, uh, two fisted fairy tales. Um, I have a publisher that's essentially said yes to it, but I haven't talked to, we've got so much other stuff going on that I haven't talked to them about the deal yet. Uh, and whether or not they're actually where I want to set it up. Uh, Eastman has given me the go-ahead to start writing the third volume of Drawing Blood because I think we have enough money left over from the second Kickstarter, honestly, to start paying for the third one before we... And because, you know, we kind of, in all honestly, honesty, the combination of the pandemic, some, you know, misfortunes we've all had, and uh, a little thing called The Last Ronin, kicked the shit out of drawing blood volume two and it's now you know a year overdue uh so last ronin is wrapping up so we're back into drawing blood number two um so we want to we actually this time we're going to try our best to be pretty much finished with drawing blood number three before we kick start it just so that we can guarantee people look we swear to god you give us the money you'll get this thing a month after you know you'll get it as soon as we know how many we have to print 
and that's a very you know that's an exciting thing there's uh there's a uh a possible media project with the spin-off um uh, the radically rearranged ronin ragdolls um can't really say where or when on that yet but there's some interest in it in some interesting quarters for us um and i don't think it's been announced yet but maybe it well sooner rather than later uh there's an anthology coming of stories about Kolshak the Night Stalker. Yeah, yeah. And um, I lucked out and got offered the first story in the collection, which is essentially Kolshak in high school in 1937, 38, nice. having his first adventure. So I'm writing sort of the young Indiana Jones, the, you know, the first 15 minutes of Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, but with Kolshak the Night Stalker in 1938. Um, it's going to be a good anthology, our, our friend uh, Rodney Barnes. Yeah, Rodney's on it. Nancy yeah. Collins, yeah. who's been on the show. Yeah. A lot of people who've been on the show uh, yeah, are yeah. writing for it. I think Nancy's doing the – it's a couple of story, a story for each decade with a couple of stories in the 70s. Yeah. Um, and there's all and there's some other stuff going on that might involve me actually writing a short story. Again, I can't talk about that on air just yet. And some other, just, just, there's a lot of balls in the air. And sadly, I can talk about very, very few of them that don't involve Elvira. But it's been, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a busy, it's been a busy couple of months and it's going to be a busy next year. And those are good things. Oh, and I should also say, while, before I completely wrap up, I will be at San Diego Comic Con Special Edition. I will be at Booth. 2436, I think. <laughs> I literally just got that information today. Uh, I am going to be at uh, LA Comic Con. Um, I don't know where my table is yet, but I think it's going to be involved with the comic bu bug retailer. Um, and. You're doing yeah. the Golden Age to All Ages panel at... And I'm doing the Golden Age Saturday. to All Ages. And I'm doing a panel at San Diego Comic-Con about um, working with media properties on Saturday and a Kevin Easton Studios on Saturday and then a signing at Kevin's booth on Sunday. I nice. think that's everything. I think that's that's all. Uh, but yeah, I really wanted to jump back into the cons. Yeah, twenty four thirty six. I wanted to jump back into the cons with both feet. Uh, I have my booster shot, so I I feel okay about it. If I hadn't gotten my third shot, I might feel differently with the surge going on. But yes, I'm attending Teenage Mutant Ninja Thanksgiving at Kevin's house, and then uh, the three days after that will be uh, at Comic Con. Nice. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing the cons just yet. I mean, I have all my. I have passes for uh, for each of these cons. Cool. Um, and, and obviously, LA Comic Con is you know in my backyard here. Yeah. Um, San Diego is just a train ride away, but um, yeah, I don't know. Um, so busy right now that um, it's hard for me to stomach. You know, uh, uh, I, I was actually supposed to do the Golden Ages uh, uh, panel, and um, uh, my daughter has, uh, my, my wife's working and my daughter has, uh, uh dance recital stuff. So, um, I can't miss the five-year-old and be her, the good, uh, be the good dad, her, her ballet hip hop, uh, um, 
don't uh, be the recital. don't be the five don't girls. be the bad dad from the first act of a Spielberg movie. Be the good dad from the third act of a Spielberg. Yeah, movie. Uh, w- w- would never do it. Couldn't miss it. Uh, yeah. So I, I had to I had to step away from that one, unfortunately. But um, uh, yeah, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll see. I might um, I may still I may still pop up for a day or two here. Uh, just kind of cool. bounce it around. Well, to last word, you know, Ryland, uh, this podcast was your idea. Thank you for inviting me along. Uh, I think we've had an amazing 54 episodes and uh, next year we'll do 54 more. 54 more. Yeah. Sign me (laughs) up. All right. (laughs) Cool. Till then, see you in 2022, everybody. Take it easy, guys. Thanks for listening. If you're watching us on YouTube, be sure to smash that like button. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other fine purveyors of ear crack, please leave us a five-star review. And wherever you're watching and or listening, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. We'll see you back here next week for more madcap hijinks on the Writer's Block. For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.